it's Chris Wendelkin, and this is On The Line, a podcast where I talk to friends of mine living around the country about all things NBA. Uh, we do some NBA deep dives, drafts, uh, news from around the league, talk NBA free agency and off-season and all that fun stuff. Thanks for tuning in. If you're new to the show, you can tweet at me at onthelinepod underscore pod. I'm on Instagram. You can find me there. If you have any questions, thoughts, ideas for the show, you have a question about uh, your upcoming fantasy basketball draft, you can email me at onthelinepod at gmail.com. Last, if you could uh, do me a favor, especially if you're a new listener, please rate, review, and subscribe to the show in iTunes or wherever you get podcasts. Leave me a five-star review. Say something nice, even if you don't mean it. Uh, I really appreciate it. It helps the show out a lot, especially with the NBA season right around the corner. All right. Welcome back. Thanks for tuning in. Hope everyone's doing well. Hope everyone is enjoying the crisp fall weather. Um, New York has spoiled us rotten the last last week or so. It's really cooled down, and it's uh, it's that really, really, really nice, great fall jacket weather. Um, for a little while now, Ben Craw and I have been talking about uh, a few different podcasts that we've wanted to produce, NBA deep dive sort of stuff. And, um, you know, teams and players that we've been fascinated with over the course of our lives, especially, you know, thinking back on our youth watching the NBA as kids. And one of the first names, if not the first name that that came up in discussion was Allen Iverson, a player that we grew up watching in the shadows of the tri-state area right down the I-95 in Philadelphia. And so it started as a fun little idea kind of quickly became an obsession, as is often the case for Ben and I when it relates to all things 90s NBA, early 2000s NBA. And so over the last couple months, Ben and I would send each other YouTube clips and articles. We'd pull quotes, rewatch old games. We'd rewatch various documentaries from the 30 for 30 called No Crossover, The Trial of Allen Iverson, to the all-encompassing film called Iverson, made a couple years ago, which is now streaming on Netflix. Ben inhaled Uh, Kent Babb's biography on Iverson called Not a Game, we just completely immersed ourselves. And we quickly realized to do any semblance of justice to the story of Allen Iverson and his cultural impact on the NBA, to speak about the man's life and career in a three-dimensional, 360-degree kind of way to try to understand how and why things went down in his life and his career the way they did that this was going to be a much bigger, larger, more complicated endeavor than we could possibly ever fit in one or two or even three podcasts. So Ben and I agreed to take our time and just to be to, to be thorough and to tell the story as best as we could, shortcomings, blind spots, and all. And I wish I could tell you how many episodes are going to be in this series, but frankly, we're still recording it, even as I speak. All right, enough rambling from me. I'm very proud of this project. Without further ado, here it is, The Life and Times of Alan Iverson. All right, uh, we are back. This is the On The Line podcast. I'm here tonight with Ben Craw. We are, uh, BC, how you doing? How are you feeling? I'm feeling good. I'm feeling good. Nice to have you back. Um, thank you. <laughs> Unofficial it's great to be back. Host, co-host of the podcast, <laughs> Ben Craw. It's getting dangerously close to yeah. that. <laughs> I think we're at that moment. To, uh, to that uh, yeah. designation. But, um, but it's always a joy to be here. So yeah. thank you once again for having me. We're in Queens tonight. and uh, Coming live, well, not live, but in person. Live and in person to discuss the historic and influential career of six foot nothing, 165 pound uh, basketball prodigy, Allen Iverson. The life and times. The answer, Allen Iverson. Of Allen Iverson. uh, Considered by many to be the best pound for pound basketball player ever. If you just go per pound, you could make a case that he is, you know, potentially the most productive player. Like, I would, I would, if he were a boxer, yeah, right? I would definitely. He's in the conversation. Classify him as the best pound for pound scorer mm-hmm. in basketball history. Fair. I think best pound for pound player is is a little bit, you know, yeah, probably a vague, doesn't a more vague uh, thing to to argue. Yeah, but I think it's pretty safe to say best pound for pound scorer. Yeah. Possibly best pound-for-pound pound athlete, yeah, um, which we'll get into yes. in greater detail to, to to back up that claim. So why, like, 
why why this podcast? Like, why are we here tonight? Why are we talking about Allen Iverson? That's a great question. Yeah, I don't even remember where where when we where we were when we decided. You sent me some random texts one yeah. night months ago now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> saying, oh, we should dive deep into into AI as just an interesting topic because um, we had kind of come up with this this premise for the podcast to, to do these deep dives into NBA history. And I was like, yeah, sure, totally, cool, good idea, Allen Iverson. Um, you know, uh, obviously. A, uh, a very rich history, both on the court and off. Uh, lots of stuff to explore there. And I and I kind of was just like, I don't know. I, I was like, yeah, sure. I, I could like read a few articles over the course <laughs> of a week and, uh, and and bone up a little bit. You know, obviously I have plenty of, of personal memories to draw on. I haven't really kept up that closely, um, you know, later in his life. So, uh, you know, I could just do, do a quick brush up and I'd be prepared. Sure. And then I quickly realized, wait a second, this is, this is a topic... That's going to require yeah. a little bit more. Yeah. And I found that the more I dug, the more there was. And the more I had to dig, and then I would find more, and well, then I had to dig more. You're also the perfect person for <laughs> this podcast. Like, you know, fans fans of the pod know your work from probably most like memorably from our um, Brian Colangelo episode, mm. right? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, if, sure. if that if that was the if that was your master's degree of podcasts, <laughs> this really I think is like your PhD. Yeah, this it is might like, be. This might be your master work. Yeah. thus far on the pod. Yeah, um, it's it's really weird. I've never quite felt a compulsion that I felt with this where mm. it was almost like I hadn't given this man the sort of the attention and I don't want to say the respect but like it's almost like I didn't give him the time of enough of the time of day at, yeah. at the time of right. his career that he deserved and I found that I was almost compensating <laughs> now yeah. because of this dumb podcast that we do yeah. you had given me um, yeah. a reason just the slightest bit of an opening <laughs> to, to revisit um, and I found that suddenly I, I almost like had to make up for the fact that I hadn't paid this man enough attention at the time. And, and it was almost like as I was researching him, I was also researching myself. Oh my God. <laughs> I think the entire listening audience was hoping that's yeah. where you were going. <laughs> oh God. It's so, good to be back. Yeah. Oh. So we've got some stuff to work out here, folks. Wow, I hope you are, uh, on board yeah. for... A bit of a journey. The life and times because of Alan Iverson. this is going to be a special episode or four. Yeah, we don't know. It could. Uh, we don't know what we're getting ourselves into. Frankly, no, no restrictions here. Let's just give it the time that it needs. Okay. Um, where Where do we begin in this story? Like, what makes sense to you? You are our foremost AI historian. What makes sense for, from your perspective in, in telling the Allen Iverson story? Okay, so as a starting point, I think we, actually now that I, I think back on it, I do remember initially we were thinking Allen Iverson is a, is a topic, what's a good angle? And after a quick bit of Googling, I, I realized that we were coming up on the 25th anniversary of his sentencing That's of right. the Allen Iverson trial in 1993 after the infamous bowling alley brawl, which ended up with him uh, being convicted and sent to prison and we were like that's such a fascinating story obviously 30 for 30 did an incredible documentary on it by the documentarian steve james mm-hmm. um that we're going to discuss uh in depth um and we were like oh it'd be cool to talk about that and then i realized as soon as i started researching it more like i kind of just want to talk about his whole life so well i feel like it's it's basically impossible to talk about his career as an athlete without having a larger yes. conversation about Ex- where he's from and exactly. what he went through. Because he really is, I mean, he's up there with, like, Muhammad Ali, yeah. um, Michael Jordan, in terms of an athlete that is so much bigger, re- represents so much more sure. than just the game that he like played. a cultural influence, but also what I, what I think about AI is really that, like, his on-the-court play, and I hope this is like a theme and thread that like will run throughout the, the podcast, mm-hmm. his on-the-court play, his style of play, really was a manifestation and representation yes. of his life. Yes. Like, the two the way, were the way inextricably he, intertwined. Yeah, the way he played on the court was a representation 
of the way he lived his life and what he had been through. Mm -hmm. And he really had no other way to play the game of basketball because of his life circumstance and his life after basketball, for that matter, also you know, is a continuation of that story. Yeah, where it was like, it's all this is how piece. This is how he played on the court, and this is now how he's living his life. And exactly. you can't separate one from the other. Yep, totally agree. Um, I mean, it was just all out there for everyone to see. There was just no barrier between Allen Iverson, the basketball player, and Allen Iverson. The person. The person and the icon and the, you know, cultural image and everything. So, yeah, I say we get into it. Um, so, all right. I wanted to have um, the reason I, I brought up that that Steve James, which I um, really encourage every one of our listeners to to watch this if you haven't already seen it. Thirty for the thirty. 30. For 30 it's called No Crossover: The Trial of Allen Iverson, um, and the filmmaker Steve James, who was famous for um, the documentary Hoop Dreams um, from the early nineties. When he was actually making that film, um, is the time is the exact time that the Allen Iverson trial was going on in Virginia, which is where Iverson grew up, and also happens to be the same hometown as Steve James. So Steve James did this great documentary for ESPN. I encourage everyone to check it out. But um, one of the key kind of moments in that documentary, because he really explores... Well, all right, I mean... (laughs) There's so much to even. All right, I'll just I'll just say this line, um, and I'll start with a name. The name is Joyce Hobson. Now, who is Joyce Hobson? She was a relatively minor character in the story of Allen Iverson. She was a teacher at Hampton High. Um, now, that's the hometown that uh, Hampton, Virginia, is the town that Iverson grew up in, um, which we'll discuss later. But she was a Hampton High teacher and also an organizer and spokesperson for. SWIS, which was the kind of community activist um, civil rights group that formed after Iverson was sent to prison, which was, uh, you know, kind of protesting and and organizing in order to, you know, raise awareness about the injustice of that whole uh, situation. Yeah. So anyway, Joyce Hobson in this documentary by Steve James had this line. And now uh, it's important to note that Steve James is a white filmmaker and uh, Joyce Hobson is a black woman. And she said this to Steve James. She was reluctant to do an interview for the film, but she did eventually sit down with him. And this is what she said. She said, quote, I think, again, it's critical that African-Americans tell their stories. You couldn't paint it because I lived it. I experienced it. When you look up and a story is being told and commented on and analyzed by only white journalists, then that in and of itself is very callous. Yeah. So that's like a disclaimer that I want to just kind of get out of the way right at the top, um, even though we've already been going for like a few minutes now. Um, Because when we talk about Allen Iverson, we're going to have to talk about race. And we're going to have to like talk about sort of what he meant to people that are not like you and me, Chris, because we are two white guys. Now, I'm not like trying to like put ourselves on the same level as like Steve James, um, because we're just two idiots doing a podcast out of Queens. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I still feel like there's some responsibility to to just say like right off the top, like what we, our experience and our perceptions of Alan Iverson are whether we loved him or hated him or however we felt about him comes from a perspective that is different from a lot of people that meant so much, uh, that he meant so much to. Yeah. Um, so uh, also, I want to mention Steve James's response to that line, which I think is a beautiful sentiment, and it's one of the reasons why I think um, he's a really, truly great filmmaker. He said, in response to that line from Joyce Hobson, quote, I'm trying to understand it as a white guy who grew up here, and I'm trying to understand what it was like for you, which I do think one can do, because if we can't, there's no hope. Yeah. So I kind of love that. Like, you know, I like, think the the most important thing is, you know, and, and you are speaking to this just by even bringing up race and the fact that we're two Caucasian guys talking about the experience of someone fundamentally different than us is like the most important thing is just to acknowledge our differences and that we come from a very different circumstance. We're from a totally different socioeconomic background and history. Uh, we faced entirely different issues, prejudices than this guy. So, you know, I think it's a very healthy exercise to try to imagine and understand what it must be like to be fundamentally different than ourselves, which yeah. is frankly very privileged people. Yeah. Like we have inherent privileges that someone in Allen Iverson's position didn't have. And unfortunately, 
you know, in the case of the, uh, the bowling alley incident, he was the victim of um, prejudice. So I would argue that. Yeah, which, I think which we'll get into. <laughs> yeah, I think this is a great opportunity and thing, which is like highlighting um, uh, the differences that people go through. Yeah, in culture. Yeah, and I think it's always just important to like keep that at the kind of forefront of our minds yep. when we're like, you know. Because we're going to get into a whole bunch of, like, dumb, you know, yes. psychoanalysis and blah, 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 blah. Sure. And hopefully, like, we steer clear of, like, the cliches and tropes of, like, talk radio, like, hip-hop yep. athletes and all that bullshit. And I think, so I just kind of want to, like, set the tone Great. early uh, to say that. Okay. Great. Thank you. So that being said, I wanted to start by you and I talking about, before we get into the actual life of, of Iverson, let's talk about how we personally remember him Mm -hmm. how did we feel about him not today not looking back as adults after you know researching and 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 remembering but how did we do you can you try to like actually put yourself back in your 15 year old shoes in 1997 and like what do you remember actually feeling about him at the time okay so i don't think i've told you this story Mm. but my earliest memory and experience as a child with Alan Iverson was, I want to say I was probably 11 years old or 12 years old. Mm. For Christmas one year, um, my parents, Nick's tickets were so expensive, right? Sure. And I, you know, my parents weren't wealthy or, or anything like that. So we could never afford to go to a Knicks game. Mm-hmm. But they knew how much we loved basketball. Mm-hmm. Basketball was our lives, my brothers and I. Sure. And so we would watch basketball, you know, all the Knicks games that were on TV every weekend, right? And so for Christmas one year, my parents got, um, my brothers and I, all four of us, tickets to um, a St. John's, uh, a college basketball tournament at Madison Square Garden. Mm. And Big we East were tournament? Big East tournament. Yeah. Yeah. And we were St. John's fans. My okay. dad went to St. John's and um, they were the Red Men at Before that time. Before they were renamed. They were still. <laughs> because they're like, wait a minute, we can't call a team the Red Men. This is a time when, <laughs> you know. St. John's somehow figured it out 30 years ago and yeah. the Washington Redskins are still working still on it. Still working on it. Yeah. Um, so my parents got us tickets to a Big East tournament happening at Madison Square Garden. We were huge St. John's fans, huge fans of Felipe Lopez and oh, Zendon yeah. Hamilton. And um, now, was this John Wallace or pre-John Wallace? No, he was, he was, was Syracuse, wasn't he? He was Syracuse. Okay, yeah, never mind. This was in the same general time period as John Wallace. I'm pretty sure yeah. John Wallace came on the scene about two later, to four years after Felipe Lopez right, and AI right. were on the college scene. Right. So, but anyways, so the we went to two games. Um I think it was like a Saturday. There was like a four o'clock game and, you know, like an eight o'clock game or whatever it was. Mm -hmm. The first game was St. John's, uh, St. John's in Georgetown. And the second game was Kentucky playing drawing a blank. It was someone like uh, Boston College or Mm. Villanova, one one of the marquee, maybe it was Notre Dame, one of the marquee Big East uh, squads. Mm -hmm. But... I will never forget because I was such a homer and I was such a huge Felipe Lopez fan. I will never forget his matchup with Allen Iverson, mm-hmm. who was this prodigy at at Georgetown, mm-hmm. and I couldn't believe um, or really accept that anyone could be more special than like the New York kid, the New York yeah. product. Felipe, Felipe Lopez, if I remember correctly, was a Haitian born New York, like a Haitian born kid that uh, immigrated to New York and became like a high school, like legend, whatever. And it was like this wonderful, amazing story that the hometown, the hometown kid was staying home, going to college in New York. And so I just couldn't wrap my head around that someone could be better than this guy. Yeah. Because I watch St. John's all the time. Yeah. And I will never forget watching that game at MSG with my brother, seeing Allen Iverson on those Georgetown, wow. that Georgetown team. So you coached, saw him in person. Coached by John Thompson. And he, it, it was a different stratosphere of yeah. player. And, and I should say, Felipe Lopez... Got drafted, made it to the pros. Zendon Hamilton made it to the pros. Mm-hmm. All these guys like had careers in the league, but it was very clear. It was very clear that like it was a an entirely different class of player. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. AI was this jitterbug on the court, just juking 
you know, cutting into the lane, just a glimmer, like a glimpse into what we would eventually see Mm -hmm. on the pro level. And so that was my first, that was my first like understanding of this guy, Allen Iverson. And then slowly but surely I, you know, he became a bigger national story that year. Uh, He spent two years at Georgetown and he became a bigger story at Georgetown, bigger national story. And I remember, you know, again, I was, I want to say 11 years old, 13 years old. And so I, things like the internet really didn't exist, weren't prevalent. So you couldn't really research, get a full 360 perspective on someone. And I just vaguely knew, I was like, I vaguely knew that this guy, Alan Iverson, had been in jail, was just in jail. And it was just kind of like, you know, all I knew, you know, my interaction with like sports media was Newsday. It was like the local newspaper. Mm -hmm. So that was like... You know, I had one source of, of right. news. So I basically, and it was whatever like, they wrote about that day, they controlled the narrative. <laughs> yeah. Right. So uh, what I knew about what I, and you know, New York newspapers, the Post, the Daily News, these are very like sensationalized, um, you know, like they make their tabloids. Oh, of they course. they yeah. make a living by sensationalizing news. And so what I knew of Alan Iverson was he was like, maybe like an ex-convict or something mm-hmm. and now was playing for Georgetown which had this squeaky clean image and was he was being coached by John Thompson who is this like stately worldly like good upstanding man and mm-hmm. it just like didn't really make sense and I was like I don't really understand I think this guy was just in jail I don't really understand why but he's really good and he plays for this college program and the next thing I knew, he was he was in the pros. Right. So it was very interesting, you know. Uh, obviously, as I got older and read more about Allen Iverson, and obviously he became this legend in the pros. He sort of like fleshed out the story and learned more, and it was so incredible to see the thirty for thirty to really hear about the trial and mm-hmm. hear about like all the misconceptions, all the injustices around him, and it, it was. Um, it was very much an education and very interesting t- for me to kind of frankly like explore my own relationship to race and that situation and like how little I understood of what was going on and how like easily I accepted this like spoon-fed narrative from the media and right, I was like right right oh I'll, I'll just believe what they tell me because that's what they tell me and I'm I'm assuming that they're telling me the truth for a reason and yeah so it, it, it's been very interesting uh obviously like you know the more you read about someone the older you get the more you read uh, just to understand like the full picture with AI, but that sure. that was my first experience with Allen Iverson was when he was a uh, freshman and sophomore sensation at Georgetown. Interesting, yeah, because my very first memory of him was also uh, from from college, which is funny because I basically, uh, I mean, back then I watched a lot more college basketball than I do now. Yeah, um, I was obviously a huge UConn fan right. uh, growing up in Connecticut. Um, and I vividly remember watching him square off against Ray Allen in the, um, big East, uh, tournament final in 96. Yeah. Um, and rooting incredibly hard for Ray Allen and UConn who did go on to win that game on a, a totally iconic Ray Allen buzzer beater. Um, but I remember seeing Iverson and just being like, holy shit, this kid is insane. Like he was just like uncontainable. Um, and UConn had a great team um, with, you know, Ray Allen, and I think they had a couple other guys. Um, this was, like, right before, yep. like, Rip Hamilton and, like, Kiladelamine won mm-hmm. the national championship in 99. But they anyway, uh, I remember being, like, you know, super ecstatic that UConn won that game, but just, like, still remembering, like, oh, man, Allen Iverson, like, that dude. Is crazy, and then of course he got drafted uh, with the first pick the very next uh, well, it's summer. Interesting, even a guy like Ray Allen uh, had this squeaky clean image. Oh, totally. You know yeah. what I mean? And I felt like that was always part of the story with Allen Iverson was that there was this like there's a little yeah there's this like storm cloud always yeah. over his head. And there was and, a weird edge and like danger to him. Yeah, that that like, it was like he's he's from the wrong side of the tracks kind yeah. of thing, and it was and like it was this kind of like our first. Ex- exposure to that type of an athlete like I remember it in football it was a little bit more common like you know I remember like the Dallas Cowboys and like the like Michael Irvin would like get in scraps right. with the law and it was like 
you know, there were like always a couple dudes who would get like DUIs or whatever. And you, and I kind of remember thinking like, oh yeah, there's like, like the idea of the, the kind of like, you know, bad seed, but he's such a good athlete that will look past it. Look, yeah. Overlook it was like kind of in my head, but it was never really fully out there in such a like, kind of like aggressive way until Iverson. Um, Well, I feel like, you know, yeah, to that point, like there, I I feel like there was always, you know, through our childlike lens and perspective of, of the sports landscape and world, there were always guys who were like, super talented that got into a little trouble on the side, be it a DUI or this, that, and the other. But Iverson was one of the first athletes that I can remember that was like incarcerated. Yeah. Especially as a young kid. Yeah. And then left jail. And it's probably right. It was like, it was like, you know, frankly, like that's a hard thing to understand what it means. That's a hard thing to forget. Yeah. Um, it's like a very vivid image. Totally. And I think, you know, a lot of people, certainly when you're a kid, like you assume when someone has been in jail, it's because they were supposed to be there. Yeah. You know, like you yeah. don't have he, any concept. He's a bad, he's a bad guy. You don't he have any concept bad. that like the legal system could be corrupt oh, or yeah. like prejudicial Absolutely. or something. This is yeah. incredibly pre-woke days for, right. for us right. As, right. as 12 and so 13 it's like, year olds. If you like, see someone in a jumpsuit, in an orange jumpsuit, you yeah. just assume that's because that's because he's a bad person yeah. and he did bad things and yep. he deserves to be there. And it's <laughs> totally. like, no, that's the most oversimplified, yep. frankly, like racist, and yep. um, just like naive uh, uh, con- like relationship to uh, incarceration. Yeah, completely. So then, how did you feel about him in his in his pro days? Like, how, how, obviously, early like, on, you mean? We were early on, and and you know, th- and throughout. throughout his career, like as Knicks fans, like you know, he wasn't on our team. He wasn't on our team. But how um, did you like? You know, where did so, he sort of rank for you? Yeah, so it's interesting. I, I would say, so uh, fans of the show know that, like, where we were true blue Nick fans, especially through the 90s, early 2000s. Uh, when Iverson was on the scene, the Knicks were good, and they were kind of like... Um, they were kind of like uh, declining as he was on the rise. Yeah. Um, exactly. So like sort of <laughs> Ewing, Ewing and Oakley and Mason and Pat Riley and the Van Gundy teams were sort of cresting as Iverson was like emerging. Yeah. And um, so, you know, uh, Philadelphia is two hours away from New York City. I'm, I'm a New York Jets fan. Um, so I never had this like adversarial relationship with the city of Philadelphia. Mm, and see, Philadelphia, that's where we differ because right. I was a huge Giants, Giants fan. fan. Yeah. I never necessarily had this adversarial relationship with the city of Philadelphia and Philadelphia sports. I'm mm. a Mets fan and the Mets and the Phillies are gigantic rivals. But the thing is the Mets mm. have always been so bad right. that it's kind Not of like, rivalry. yeah, it's just, a, it's, it was irrelevant because, yeah. you know, they didn't play meaningful games like ever it seemed especially in the 90s right so um i you know uh, i mean in terms of like the sixers you know they were in the eastern conference the knicks basically were were on the decline as as iverson's sixers were on the rise so i sort of frankly enjoyed them like i i like they weren't like a nemesis for the knicks or anything like that you Mm -hmm. know it's not like iverson was ever squaring off against patrick ewing in the in the height of his career or anything like that so i was able to just enjoy him as like a basketball specimen Mm -hmm. and he is someone that i quickly really grew to love and i would say my love for him has really grown deeper and deeper like like a fine wine, as it were, (laughs) uh, over the years, you know, like the more I understood what he was doing, how hard he was playing, the incredible feat that, that he really, like, I, I read a stat, um, I read a stat that for his career he averaged forty-one minutes a game. Yes, yeah, which we'll, is we'll, like, get, we'll get to yeah, we'll dive we, into some of the numbers. We can dive into the numbers and sort of like this, his style. Some of, play. of them are completely mind-boggling, but that one to me like might be more astounding than even like any of his scoring feats yeah. or anything just like that. When you consider like again, this is a six-foot, one hundred and sixty-something pound guy. Yes, that basically like allowed himself to just be um just get like beat up on a nightly basis 
uh, I really took uh, a liking to Iverson. Yeah, the thing that I remember more than anything, and I didn't watch him all that often um, since he didn't play in my local market, but, you know, the Knicks would face off against the Sixers four times a year right. as uh, as Eastern Conference, um, you know, rivals. And I just remember that it seemed like every time he shot the ball, mm-hmm. he would hit the floor. Yes. Like, he was just constantly falling down. Can I say something? Not in a clumsy way. Yeah. But because he was so tiny, Mm -hmm. and every time he shot, he was usually either in the paint or had a defender you know, all over him and drawing contact. And he was just in the stands or he was hitting the, the floor after a layup. And it was just astounding to me. And like every time I would like kind of, I like would sort of forget how good he was until I watched him yeah. and, and actually like saw him in person or not in person, but, but watched him live. And then it was just, yeah, there was just nothing else. I just want like, to say a, one thing about my experience with Iverson and the NBA, especially as a kid. So in, in my house, we didn't grow up. My, my parents didn't have, we didn't have cable TV. Mm. We had one television, just basic television. Right. Mm-hmm. So we, that, that meant we were getting like CBS, NBC, Fox, you know, channel 11, WPIX, whatever. It was. Sure. So what was really cool about my experience watching Allen Iverson was I only saw him play marquee games. Mm. Like he was, when I saw Allen Iverson it play, stage. it was because he was on NBC. Yeah. You know what I mean? This is like when NBC had their like flagship game of the week. And it was always some version of like the Sixers are playing Vince Carter in Toronto, mm-hmm. you know, or the Sixers are playing Milwaukee. The Sixers are playing the Lakers. They're playing the the Kings, whoever, whoever it was. Mm-hmm. So I always felt like it was an event, mm-hmm. like like almost in the way when you buy a pay-per-view boxing match, like that's what it felt like for mm-hmm. me as a kid watching Allen Iverson was it, it was an event. And to your point, like about hitting the floor and playing really hard, he was a warrior. I mean, oh, yeah. he, he to me was the epitome of like a warrior, like a tiny warrior basketball player. Mm-hmm. Completely Hitting insane. the paint, taking 30 shots a game, Barking at the refs, cussing refs out, getting technicals. I mean, he, it was as if his heart was like outside of his body. Yeah. And it was like on his jersey. It's a cliche, but one quote that he would repeat over and over again is that he would play each game like it was his last. Right. And, you know, you hear that, uh, that's a cliche in right. sports that's, you know, probably one of the top five cliches of, of all time. But he actually fucking did it. Like, he, like, you didn't actually believe that cliche until you watched him and you were like, what is the, like? What is wrong with this well, dude? He is just, like going too hard. If he's going his, too hard. You look at his exactly. You look at his style of play. I've said this. I think I said it during one of the the drafts that we did. It was as if he was like he was going to injure himself. Yeah. He played so hard. The way you know with his crossover, his like hard left, hard right, like he not only was going to break the ankles of opposing defenders, he could have broken his own ankles yeah. if he wasn't careful. Yeah. He just moved so hard. He was diving at the basket on every play. It was it was a reckless abandon. He yeah. played with a reckless, reckless, animalistic abandon. And, you know, like we mentioned before, that was how he lived his life. Yeah, and that was say, like his the word life, reckless is actually very his salient life, his because <laughs> life circumstance necessitated him playing that way. Yep. I think with that, should we actually get into sure. the meat and potatoes Great. of this podcast and talk about that life? So um, let's just start at the beginning. Okay. Alan Iverson mm-hmm. was born on June 7th, 1975 mm-hmm. in Hampton, Virginia to a 15-year-old mother, Ann Iverson who will uh, be a pretty important player in our story here. Um, and dad is not on the scene. Dad is Gonzo. So Anne came from the ghettos of Hartford, Connecticut. And wow. um, in high school, she fell in love with this dude named Alan Broughton. And Alan was not a great guy, but, you know, Anne loved him. And she was basically Anne's gr- uh, grandmother. I think Anne's mother had died, had actually passed away when she was like 14 or 15, right around the time that she was hanging out with Alan Broughton. And her grandmother, uh, Ethel, Ethel Mitchell, decided it was time to get that fa- get, get her family out of the, the the bad streets of Hartford and bring her down to a bring them down to a to quieter area uh, down in Virginia. So she left, but right before she left, 
she decided to lose her virginity to mm. Alan Broughton. And so literally she left after being impregnated with Alan Iverson and he just stayed up there um, and got into all sorts of trouble. He's yeah. now in jail for stabbing a woman in like 1996 or something like that. I have a question. Was, I, I, I believe I read or saw in one of the documentaries, was there eventually some reconciliation uh, with uh, Alan Iverson's father? Like, did he eventually come back into the fold a little bit and then was it not the case that he would just periodically get in trouble and always kind of wind up back in jail so it's i'm not sure if you're thinking of his biological father or his um his sort of i don't know what the word is but his non-biological father michael freeman yeah i think that's what Um, i'm thinking of but anyway, yeah, his biological father, I don't think he really had much contact with. I okay. think he maybe visited him in prison once. But again, that might, I might be confusing that with his I know there, I, Michael Freeman. I, I saw AI do an interview talking about he saw his dad. Again, I don't know if it's his biological father or it's or if it was like his stepfather or whatever it was, getting arrested on the streets when he was like yeah. 11, 11 years old. That was Michael Infant- Freeman, yeah. his, yeah. his non-biological father, okay. who we'll get to. But um, suffice to say, he had, you know, a very shitty upbringing. And that's also kind of a cliche of like, you know, the the hard luck athlete who, right. who rises up out of um, poverty, you know, poverty yeah. and, and despair and, you know, makes good and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, sports are, are the way out. And that's all kind of like such well-worn territory that I think it's, we often kind of like gloss over like just how just like the, the sheer like tragedy and and depravity of of these of these kids lives so not to like get too dark here but i kind of feel like it's it's necessary to just go over some of the details of mm-hmm. alan's upbringing mm-hmm. so they moved down to hampton virginia and as as a kid growing up he like i said his his grandmother Anne's mom died so he's living and he has you know his father's not around so he's living in a house where his mother is trying to work to provide for the entire family and at various times there were like you know it was like him and his brothers and his cousins they had like 13 kids um, living wow. in a two bedroom house um, not all of whom I think he had two he had a younger sister he had two younger sisters um, but with the extended family um, you know it was a lot of people and Anne is basically trying, his mom is basically trying to provide however she can. She doesn't do a great job of it, obviously, because she's just a single mother. Um, she had a bunch of random jobs. Uh, one job, she worked at a, at a clothes packaging and distribution factory where she worked from 4 p.m. to 4 a.m. I mean, it's crazy. Like, what, imagine, like, do you remember what you were like when you were 15? Yeah, no. Like, you're a father. Like, were you, like I can't even fathom... It's insane. Being so trying to parent as a 15-year-old. Yeah. Their their house in, in Hampton um, laid on top of the city's sewers, um, which when they burst, the floor would be flooded with raw sewage. Alan's uh, youngest sister, Aisha, was born um, late, I think like 10 or 12 days late, and um, and had uh, seizures as a as an uh, infant. And of course, like his mom like wasn't, always around to like actually care for that child so that was on alan when he was like nine to like keep his younger sister alive uh they were evicted a couple times um he often had uh you know no electricity no water when there was water it wasn't hot so and you know to be fair like alan's mom and also like wasn't always the most responsible parent she Mm -hmm. was out on the streets a lot Mm -hmm. partying Mm -hmm. she was known as juicy that was her nickname right um so anyway she um eventually started dating a guy named michael freeman who um pretty much became alan's uh dad um until that is he was i think a sophomore in high school yeah so alan's de facto father michael freeman uh, present for, for most of his adolescence. Um, and he worked, you know, again, as, as hard as he could to try to provide for the family, pay the bills and stuff. In 1991, midway through um, Iverson's freshman year in high school, he was caught and convicted in possession of cocaine with intent to distribute. He had gotten in, like, some kind of a car accident earlier and had lost his job. So it was, like, literally, like, all he could do to try to just make some money. So, I mean, Alan, Alan always said that he sort of respected uh, Michael Freeman and, and, you know, saw him as a, as a father who was just trying to do right by his family and 
do whatever he could to make ends meet. Yeah, it was uh, it was really difficult for them. And on top of all that, Alan was you know growing up in a neighborhood. So Hampton, Virginia is you know not the best area. There's parts that are you know better than others. Um, but he grew up in in what was kind of close to a, a housing project, low income housing project, and he witnessed just insane unimaginable violence um like when you were talking about like do you remember like being 15 years old right. and like kind of like what you were doing do you remember being eight years old like do you remember like the summer um when you were like eight years old like what you did like kind of like what your life was like vaguely okay what were the memories like generally we would go to jones beach mm-hmm. <clears throat> yeah i would go to the jo- i would go to jones beach with my brothers uh, at that point, I had started doing like community theater, so I was doing like different plays. Nice. Uh, it was a really nice existence. Yeah, yeah. Sounds... I was like being a like a boy, just yeah. like being like a nice boy, enjoying nice things. That sounds really like pleasant. Yeah. And, and normal and yep. happy. Yeah. So when Alan Iverson was eight years old, he witnessed his first murder. He was uh, sitting on the steps of a house together with a friend, and that friend was shot dead. Later, when he was 16, Iverson has said that eight acquaintances of his were killed in one summer, including one of his best friends, this older mentor of his named Tony Clark. Wait, um, what, what age was that? When he was 16. Oh, my God. Yeah. Eight. Eight people that he knew in one summer. Uh, were killed. Tony Clark was uh, an older mentor to Alan. He was he was like 20 when Alan was in high school. He was a former athlete who would kind of like take care of Iverson. Um, Iverson stayed at his house uh, at times. And Tony Clark was stabbed to death by his girlfriend in like 1990 or so when Alan was 15. So yeah, the point of all this, not to like depress everyone and like just make them like turn off our podcast is just to like drive home the point that we're going to be doing a lot of like analyzing and like judging of this dude um Mm -hmm. and kind of like trying to figure out like what made him tick and 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 you know why did he do some of the things he did right and like i think it's it's just like imperative to always again like keep in the forefront of our minds that like this dude's experience from you know the day he was born on were just like so incredibly traumatic and and dark and difficult um in ways that like you and i cannot imagine i want to say i mean i i know this is kind of like a point this again is like a theme something like we will be reiterating throughout the pod it's in trauma that like brilliance emer- can yeah. sometimes emerge very often like for sure. like the butterfly emerging from the cocoon he his cocoon was a cocoon of trauma and and instability and yeah. chaos and uh, you know poverty and abject depression and sadness and tragedy yeah. and that was the recipe that fueled this guy's brilliance on the court totally because he was running I would say he was running from monsters like mm-hmm. he like he had like skeletons in his closet that he was like he was running from that stuff yeah. Absolutely. And the kind of like, you know, just fearlessness that he had, you know, his just like complete, not even like, it wasn't that he like wasn't willing to back down. It was like he couldn't back down. Like he didn't even like have the ability to like back down in the face of a- anyone trying to I mean, oppose him. Or... Dude, like death was staring him in the face at all times. Yeah. I feel like like the easiest thing he could have done, the easiest thing he could do would, would be just to die. Would yeah. just to be like the easiest thing you could do in that situation is just sign up for like a lifetime sentence either in prison or just be buried, you know, yeah. like just be buried. Just so easily could have. Like that was the most, that was the easiest possible route, the easiest possible choice. And this guy like defied the odds and clawed his way out of like incredible poverty and against yeah. all odds. And so obviously a big reason for that uh, survival is because he was incredibly fucking talented at sports. So early on, he was really into football. Football was his first passion. Um, he actually didn't even want to play basketball. His mom forced him to sign up and go to basketball practice when he was nine. And he like cried and threw a tantrum and didn't want to go because he thought basketball was soft and he was a football player. But anyway, he went and he showed up and he famously like saw some of his uh, football teammates when he when he showed up at basketball practice. So he was like, oh, okay, this is cool. I guess I can do this. Um, so he started playing basketball. And yeah, basically from the age of like eight or nine, the entire town realize like oh this kid is special and all sorts of coaches uh including um uh gary moore gary moore took notice and realized oh this kid is 
needs to be protected and needs to be, you know, kind of cared for because like we might not, this is a, this is a, you know, even at that young of an age, they, they all kind of like saw like, this is someone who we might not ever even see again. So all the local high schools recruited Iverson. He ended up at Bethel high, which is different from Hampton high. Um, because, um, I guess the football coach at Bethel knew uh, Iverson's like aunt or something like that, and was and like basically like just like snatched him up and 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 wanted him like that badly. Like even in high school, he was like, you know, being like fought over by by these schools. So anyway, Iverson attended Bethel High. He was a complete freak on the football field. Um, before he even really like made his name as a basketball player. He was one of the best high school football players the state of Virginia had ever seen. Can I just say one thing? Yes. Um, Gary Moore. So there yeah. are going to be different, doing my research on this pod, I found that there were probably, like in a play or in a movie, there there's a cast of characters mm-hmm. in the story of Allen Iverson. Mm-hmm. Gary Moore's you know, a big it's one. It's probably 10. And Gary Moore is one of the most important people that most people probably don't know about. And that's why we deep dive pod yeah. so you can learn about someone like Gary Moore. Totally. But Gary Moore was indispensable throughout the life of Allen Iverson. And there is no way, and I think Allen Iverson even acknowledged this, maybe even in his Hall of Fame speech, yeah. his induction, that like there's no way he is alive today without this guy, Gary Moore. Gary Moore took in Allen Iverson as a child. You mentioned that um, Allen's mom went through some serious ups and downs. There was a lot of instability, financial instability, uncertainty, and Allen would often live with Gary Moore for Mm -hmm. weeks at a time. Mm -hmm. Gary Moore was the sort of, Gary Moore essentially was Allen's father, um, you know, without, without, you know, he never had that title, but right. effectively had the role of of Alan's father mm-hmm. uh, throughout his childhood. This is someone that would regularly buy out, you know, like he, Alan would wake up on Christmas morning and there would be a Christmas tree and Alan would have a new helmet and face mask for his football team or he would have, you know, there would be uh, wristbands and a new pair of Nikes under the Christmas tree. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. He was the person that drove Alan to school and picked him up at from practice every day. Mm-hmm. He would eventually kind of emerge and graduate and become Alan's effectively business manager, manager life agent. manager, agent, whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. He was kind of the liaison between Alan and the rest of the world. He would drive Alan to games, to practices, on the in the pro level. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> this is this is a guy that yeah. would literally get yeah, in like- Alan's uh, uh, Bentley or a Lamborghini and drive him to Alan. I read uh, somewhere that Alan Iverson really didn't know how to drive a car. Yeah, he never drove his own it's, cars. Uh, it was unclear if uh, AI even had a license. Yeah, and so um, Gary Moore was was a, you know was <laughs> was his effectively his chauffeur, mm-hmm. his father, his business manager, his agent. Al- uh, Gary Moore negotiated his uh, contract with Reebok. So this is a central central figure in AI's life. And I read a quote once. I'm, I'm sure you came across this at some point about we were talking about Alan was this prodigious um, high school athlete and Alan was an incredible football player. And Gary Moore said, you know, the plan was always for Alan to play football. The plan was for Alan to go to the NFL and play in the pros. The plan was for Alan to go to Notre Dame. That was, they actively talked about Notre Dame. The plan was to go to Notre Dame, be the number one overall pick, and um, you know, be essentially Deion Sanders. Yeah, he was a. And he, here's the thing: like yeah. that would have happened, no like, doubt. He was better at football than he was at basketball. Yes, um, he was. So yeah, he attended Bethel High. Um, started out as a as a uh, defensive back, and then I think by his sophomore season, he was installed as the team's quarterback, but still also played defense and returned kicks and punts. Um, and he was like Michael. So Michael Vick was um, also from yeah. the same area. He grew up in uh, in Newport News, which is bordering Hampton. And one of the uh, one of the high school coaches that faced off against <clears throat> Iverson, I think his junior year um, in the uh, state championship game, uh, a guy named Bo Henson, who was the, yep. the coach for EC Glass. Um, 
He said that, uh, quote, I played against some great ones in 21 years, Henson said, but he was the best that we played against, no question about it. I feel like any time he put his ha- hand on the ball, he was capable of taking it to the house. And this is a guy that played against Michael Vick or yeah. coached against Michael Vick in, uh, in, in high school So as he well. was essentially saying, like, even Michael Vick couldn't do the things yeah, that Iverson like, did. Uh, yeah, and he would have been... As a, as a junior at Bethel High in 1992... AI passed for 14 touchdowns. He rushed for 15 touchdowns. <laughs> he had five on special teams. He led the team to a state championship in one game playing safety. He had seven interceptions. Yeah, yeah, insane. The championship game in December of 92, his junior year, he goes up against uh, you know Bethel's uh, big arch rival, uh, EC Glass, um, who I think had been in the final the previous season. And um, and Bethel won 27-0. Iverson returned a 60-yard punt for a touchdown in the first quarter. He had an interception in... He had two interceptions in the game, one of which was in his team's own end zone to kill uh, the opponent's only serious scoring threat. And then, in the uh, after winning the, champion, the state championship, in the post-game interview, he gets asked by a sideline reporter, um, you know, for like the local news or whatever, he's asked how it feels to win the state championship as just a junior, and Iverson replies, quote, gonna go get one in basketball now, that's all. Wow. And he did. Yeah. So... Yeah, along with playing football and being... Oh, he was also recruited by, like, tons of colleges by the time he was even a junior. This is before his senior year season, which we'll get to didn't ever actually happen uh, for reasons that we'll discuss. But he was recruited by Florida State really hard. Mm -hmm. Dude, Um, he would have been incredible at Florida State. Yeah, they they saw him as the successor to Charlie Charlie Ward. Ward. Yeah, Um, which I love because uh, we've discussed Charlie Ward previously on this podcast. So listen, AI was, (laughs) it's just ridiculous. Yeah. I mean, it's ridiculous to think of comparing AI. If you, if you apply the same skill set to what he did on the basketball court to what he did on the football field, like imagine Charlie Ward, the football player, and then the basketball player. Now imagine Allen Iverson, what he did on a basketball court. If you could apply that to a football field, right? It's like he would have been a wrecking crew yeah. at Florida State. Like think of like how running good Charlie Ward was as a basketball player, right? And then think of how good Iverson, right? And in a weird way, I I keep thinking about how like I almost feel like he would have been. I mean, we, we've already established that he was probably better at football than basketball mm-hmm. in high school. But I almost feel like the sport would have been better for him, like, to play, like, personality-wise. Like, almost yeah. because football, even though it's, like, such a quote-unquote team game, in a weird way, it's really not. Because unlike basketball, football, you just have such a, a clear role. Mm-hmm. So it's, like, if you're the quarterback, like, yeah, it takes teamwork to, like pick who to pass to but it's like not in the same way with basketball where it's so fluid and so like there's so many different options all the time sharing the ball is such a big part of yeah and in a way like you don't there's there's like selfish like diva football players like mostly like wide receivers but they're not really like they don't play selfishly because they you can't in football if you're a wide receiver you just run your catch the ball and and either you're throwing the ball or you're not yeah like you can't really dominate the way you can in basketball so i almost feel like iverson on a football field would have been like the same freak athlete but without all the like hemming and hawing about like whether or not he cares about his teammates whether or not he's like chucking too many shots like blah 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 like imagine if he were just like a like a Deion Sanders type either a cornerback or even like maybe he was too small to be a running back um or too short to be a quarterback but like he could just he could have done anything and it would have and it would have just been like he slots into this role mm-hmm. and this is what he does and he just would have been like the best ever. I feel like it's also crazy. the sport of football the sport of football sort of embraces and loves and like rewards and celebrates people with rage. Mm-hmm. Like like oh, the yeah. way Allen Iverson played basketball. Yeah. Allen Iverson played feel- basketball with rage yeah. and anger. And he was like borderline dangerous yeah. at times. And you're not really supposed to do that in basketball. It's not really accepted. You yeah. know, like and I would say in football, there really is a spirit of like renegade outlaws. Like, mm-hmm. you know, Lawrence Taylor is very much like oh, an Lawrence archetype. Taylor also from the same area. Of grew, course. grew up in Williamsburg, right. Virginia. It, it makes total sense. Which makes so much sense when you think of his career but, but and that's life. Like, that's a whole archetype, um, or like even a guy like 
Bill Romanowski of like just these like crazed, angry people that want to hit people and hurt them. Mm-hmm. That's a that's a narrative in the sport of football that's very much like um, encouraged and embraced. Yeah. And and we romanticize these people and talk and 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 you know like they're our heroes. Whereas in basketball, it was a fundamentally like new situation the basketball david stern didn't really know what to do with alan iverson because they had never really dealt with someone of that kind of yeah you know on that level yeah he really was he was like a crazed football player who just had had wore a basketball jersey slotted into a a basketball team. so yeah so he's named the um the football player of the year the associated press group triple a football player of the year for 92 his junior season so three days after the state championship football game which we just talked about he went on to uh, his basketball season opener, scored 37 points in the season <laughs> opener, three days after uh-huh. winning state championship in football. Yeah, he was just, like, insane. Now, I think we should probably, like, take this point to start to establish the fact that he was also, like, already um, beginning to develop a reputation for, like, his his sort of troubled, you know, off-the-court, off-the-field life. Um, mm-hmm. You know, again, because his mother was not around very much and he had no real father figure, he had these coaches who were who were basically tasked with, with being his guardian. Um, and try as they might, you know, they, they weren't always able to keep track of him. He was constantly just kind of, like, roaming around the streets like, late at night, just, like, going to friends houses and just doing whatever he had a you know incredibly poor record of attendance at school a lot of that had to do with the fact that he had to like care for his you know as we said uh his his uh younger sister who had serious health issues and you know just because there was no one really like there yeah there's no one there and think about how many i mean i know this is black and white totally different but like like literally think of how many times in middle school and high school you said to your mom and dad, like, I feel sick today. Yeah. And they were like, shut up, get on the bus. Yeah. Like literally anytime he didn't want to go to school, he just didn't go to school Yeah, because there was no one there to really stop him or hold him accountable. Right. And I know this is like, again, a black and white issue. I'm like, it's apples and oranges. I don't even mean to compare like the situations at all, but the, the basic principle is like, there was no one there to hold him accountable or even explain like, Alan, look, if you if you just stay on the straight and narrow here, there are so many opportunities in front of you. You could be a pro athlete if you mm-hmm. want. Like just like just go to class, go to practice, and you got the world in front of you. Yeah. And I, I I do think like to be fair, I think another point to make is the fact that he did have you know, he had a lot of he obviously had a lot of obstacles to overcome, but he did also have like a lot of people who cared for him, these coaches, his, his high school coach, yep. um, his, his high school basketball coach, Mike Bailey, and his high school football coach, uh, Dennis Kozlowski, I think was his name. Sounds right. And Gary Moore. These guys like really did bend over backwards to, to try to get him to, to try to get him to get his act together. And, you know, at one point I read in this book that I'll talk about later, uh, at one point, you know, once they, they sort of realized that his younger daughter or younger sister was, uh, was, was the reason why he was uh, missing a lot of school, they actually arranged for, I think it was one of the coaches or coaches assistants or something like that would drive him, him and his sister to school and his sister would be cared for in like the schools, the high schools, like home ec class. Like right. she was basically like they ran a daycare for her um, so that Alan could make it to school. And his coaches, like, as we said, went out of their way to like make sure that he was like doing homework and able to uh, to show up to class and stuff like that. And so he did have, we talk about how he had such a, an incredibly hard upbringing, which he did, but he also had, like, think about, I mean, obviously you could think about, like, the friends of his who were killed or just think about the friends of his who weren't any good at sports and who just had that same type of life in a single-parent family who weren't, and, and who just no one really gave yeah, a shit about. Who weren't and special. There was there was no opportunity. Yeah. yeah, and so it's like I think to to I don't want to make it like too romantic that he was yeah. oh he had the hardest life, but but like yeah he had a really hard life, but there are a lot and of so people who had people. a way harder life um, who didn't have. Uh, the, the type of people just like you know constantly like after him and, and, and trying to make sure he was okay and, and all this stuff so I think that gets us to the point now where where we can probably talk about um, the incident alright we're gonna leave it there for now that's chapter one of Alan Iverson The Life and Times my name's Chris Wendelkin you can follow me at on the line underscore pod 
Uh, we're going to be tweeting out stuff all week. We're going to be sending out uh, YouTube clips, articles, photos, references to the various things that we talked about during today's pod. If you have any NBA thoughts, you have any Allen Iverson thoughts, memories, ideas, things you want to share with me, you can tweet them at me or email me at onthelinepod at gmail.com. Please, 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 if you could rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes or wherever you get podcasts, it's greatly felt and appreciated. Have a great beginning to your fall, and I will talk to you guys next week. Black and